mobilizer. If you don't know what that is, a mobilizer is someone that just gets you moving. And he spoke at our missions event last year. Wanted to have him back again this year as he has a series of talks that just speak into God's heart for the nations, God's uh, role for the church in reaching the nations. Uh, Todd has been involved in going. He's served in a Middle Eastern context, uh, but he's also been very involved in mobilizing, which is seeing the church sent out uh, to, to, to reach the lost and the unreached with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, he has uh, some degrees and some things that you can read about there in your bulletin, uh, but I don't want to take any more of his time. So, Todd, why don't you come up and uh, why don't you welcome him as he comes. Good morning. It's been neat to going, uh, listening in the foyer. Everybody's talking about what their children or what their grandchildren went as for Halloween. I heard a ladybug. I heard frozen. And then I heard frozen again. And then I, had, I heard frozen one more time. Uh, you know, Halloween is the only time that everybody in the neighborhood comes to your house. Have you noticed that? And it's... Uh, I try to do something different. I, I told my wife, I'm like, let's do something different this year. Let's do uh, a good joke gets you double candy. And so whenever they'd ring the doorbell, I would open the door and I'd say, okay, a good joke gets you double candy. And the first time I did it, this little five-year-old looks at me. And I said, a good joke gets you double candy. And she goes, how do you make a handkerchief dance? And I go, I don't know. She goes, put a boogie in it. I was like, you can have it all. I'm going to make it rain, <laughs> you know. My kids this year, they're like, we want to go as Bible characters, which is awesome for a parent to hear, you know. And so I took them to Lowe's, and I bought three toilet seats because I have three kids, and I put them around their neck, and they went as first, second, and third John. And um, I really liked it. You know, they'd ring the doorbell. I'm first John. I'm second John. I'm third John. But, you know, uh my outfit's always the same. I always wrap myself up in tinfoil and go as a leftover. And uh, I hate it when people are like, you're the greatest baked potato I've ever seen, you know. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a leftover. But you know the most feared thing about Halloween? Um, the most feared thing about Halloween is not that you'll be hit by a car trick-or-treating. is not that you'll be kidnapped by someone. The most feared thing about Halloween is the Halloween candy. And we all have memories, as I do, of getting the candy, coming home, and my dad saying, check for razor blades, you know. And so I would dump out all my Reese's peanut butter cups and all my, all my, all my Kit Kats. And, uh, and if anything was halfway opened, oh, forget it, you know. But, Dad, it's just, it hasn't been eaten. It's just opened, you know. And that's the most feared thing. Actually, 60% of parents are afraid that their child will have something in their candy to hurt them. 60% of parents. But did you know that since 1950, only two children have been killed by their candy? Only two since 1950. The first child was killed when his father wanted to cash in on the life insurance policy and he laced his child's candy with cyanide. The second child was killed when his father left cocaine out and the child got into the cocaine, and the child died, and so the father laced the candy with cocaine. And so, to be honest with you, if a stranger gives you candy, that's fine, but if your parents give it to you, you need to check it. And as we look today at this idea of what is truth, okay, we're going to look at what is truth. 
we're going to look at relativism versus reality. What is truth? And how do you define truth? Because sometimes what you think is truth, like the whole Halloween stuff, it's actually not truth. And the stuff you think, oh, that can't be true, it actually is true. And so we're going to look at what is truth. Did you know July 16th, 1999, and, and many of us in this room know where we were when we heard this. July 16th, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife Caroline were flying their private jet off the Atlantic Ocean into Martha's Vineyard, but it was foggy, it was dark, and he did not trust his gauges. His gauges were saying, you're too low, pull up, pull up, pull up. But it was foggy, and he went with his instinct, and he pushed down. And, and the, the, everybody on board was killed. The National Transportation, Transportation Safety Board, and I, and I read, it says this, Kennedy's failure to maintain control of the airplane during a descent over water at night resulted in spatial disorientation. His flight instruments were saying, pull up, pull up, but he was confused and he made his own judgment call, so he pushed down, crashing. He had a choice to make. Is he going to trust his gauge or is he going to trust his instincts? There's another person in Scripture, actually, that was trying to figure out, is he going to trust his gauge or is he going to trust his instinct? Pilate. John chapter 18, Jesus is taken before Pilate. And it says this, Pilate says, uh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came to the world to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And of course, the, the statement that goes down and echoes even to this day, what is truth? What is truth? Are we left to, to, to make our own judgment call, or do we trust our gauge? Do we trust our gauge to say this is truth? Everybody's looking for truth. Everybody's looking for truth. I mean, and, 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 and how are you supposed to trust what is true, right? How are you supposed to trust what is true? As I work with college students and I ask them what is truth, many of them just kind of look up and go, oh, you know, it's what my friends say. And I'm like, really? It's what your friends say? Have you ever played Uno with your friends? Remember Uno? I mean, every time you play Uno, people are like, how are we going to play? Are we going to, you know, is blue twos mean we trade hands? Is draw four? We all draw is red fives mean we all skip a turn? And, and I remember I was playing Uno once, and I was like, hey, sh- let's, let's look at the directions. I mean, it's like I hit a puppy, you know? It's like, why would you have—well, there's one way to play Uno. No, there's not. Yeah, there is. The guy who invented Uno said there's one way. Are you to trust your parents? Are you trust your parents? This is what my parents told me. You know, look at this picture. What is this? It's a cloud maker. It's a cloud maker. Because every time we passed, one of my parents would say, look, kids, Cloudmaker. And then last year, I realized it wasn't. It's a nuclear cooling tower. But my parents told me it was a Cloudmaker. And every time we passed one, guess what I say to my kids? Look, kids, there's Santa and the Cloudmaker. Do you trust People Magazine? No, thanks. I don't want to trust People Magazine. Do you trust Twitter? Do you trust Dr. Phil? Do you trust your emotions? They change. For those who are saying there is no absolute truth, for those who say it's all about how they feel, we call them relativists. Relativists. And the world is full of relativists. Your neighborhood is filled with relativists. A relativist says that all points of view are equally valid. There's not one true or correct view. That's what relativists say. All points of view are equally valid. There's not one true and correct view. 
And the person who's put relativist on the map for most people, the person who's written more about it is a man named John Hick. I just want to introduce you to John Hick. He wrote a book called God Has Many Names. And uh, John Hick was a college student. He's walking across campus his sophomore year of college in London. He's not a Christian. He's, he's really not even interested in God, but he meets two Christians with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They share the gospel with John Hick, and John Hick has a radical conversion. He memorizes Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He begins to have evangelistic outreaches and prayer meetings. And then he realizes something. When he invites people to, to, to share their faith, when he invites people to prayer meetings, he realizes no Christians show up. They're more interested in going bowling or playing cricket than sharing their faith. And he wonders, why is this? And he cracks the door on this idea called relativism. He says, man, you know what? He says, I had a radical encounter with Christ when I heard the teachings of Christ. But a Buddhist who heard the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, a a, a Muslim who heard the teachings of Muhammad, they had the same encounter. And so Islam is right for them and Buddhism is right for them. Here's what John Hick, the relatives, would say about relativism. He would say, number one, there's a religious ultimate reality called the real to which all religions are legitimate responses. Notice he doesn't say there's a religious ultimate reality called God. He doesn't say the G word. Instead, he uses the R word, the real. There's a religious ultimate reality called the real. Why does he use the the, the word the real? Because if he uses God, he's just distanced himself from 650 million Buddhists who don't believe in God, 350 million Confucius who don't believe in God, and 250 million Taoists who don't believe in God. One out of every seven people breathing right now do not even adhere to a God. And so John Hicks says, if I want everybody to adopt my view, I can change the, the G word to the R word. He continues, number two... Salvation and transformation are occurring at the same extent across all major religions. He would say, you're no closer to the real as a Hindu, as I am a Jew, as she is a Buddhist, as they are a Muslim. We're all groping after the real. One of John Hicks' favorite uh, uh, illustrations actually comes from Hinduism. And if you went to college and took Philosophy 101, you probably heard it. John Hick, John Hick tells this story. He says, there's, there's five blind men. And the king invites into his court these five blind men and places in front of them an elephant. And the king says, reach out and explain what you feel. So the first blind man reaches out and touches the leg of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a tree trunk. The second blind man touches the tail of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a rope. The third blind man touches the side of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a mud wall. The fourth blind man touches the ear of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a banana leaf. The fifth blind man touches the tusk of the elephant, and he cries out, it's a sword. And John Hick uses this illustration to say what each one is touching is real for them. It's a real experience. But how dare the person touching the tail claim that's all that's really there? And so you touch your holy book and you say your God is like this. But the Hindu touches their holy book and their God feels different. And the Buddhist touches their holy book and their real feels different. It feels different, but we're all going after the same. And that's what John Hick would say. He continues. He says this. This is what John Hick says in one of his books. God has many names. He says, God is known in the synagogue as Adonai, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the mosque as Allah, God beneficent and merciful. He continues. In the Sikh temple, he is God. He is the father, lover, master, great giver. And in the Hindu temple, he's Vishnu, Krishna, Rama, Shiva, and many other gods and goddesses, all of whom, however, are seen as manifestations of the ultimate reality of Brahman. And in the Christian churches is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet all these communities agree that there can only be one God. For Hick and many others, truth is relative. It's relative. 
So in the New Testament, if you're a Christian, or, or so if you're a Christian, the New Testament or the Bible's in, for you and is your authority. If you're a Hindu, the Bhagavad Gita is your authority. If you're a Muslim, you go to the Quran as your authority. And if you're a Buddhist, the holy book called the Dhammapada is your authority. And again, your neighborhood is full of relativists. I was on a plane recently flying, and something happened that's never happened to me before. I fly all over, but something happened that's never happened to me before. I sat down next to a nun. It was awesome. Have you ever sat next to a nun on a plane? I mean, this is awesome. And I was like, oh my goodness, I need to start a conversation. So I said, what is your name? And she said, Sister Mary Rachel. And she said, what's your name? And I said, Brother Todd Aaron. And, and uh, I said, Sister Mary Rachel, you look so young. How old are you? And she said, I'm the year that my Savior died. And I was like, oh, okay, 33. She said, how old are you? And I said, well, I've been at the right hand of the Father for seven years. And she's like, oh, okay. And we start, you know, bantering back and forth. And um, she says to me out of nowhere, she's like, can I tell you a joke? And I said, is it clean? And she says, uh, she says, yes. I'm like, hey, we homeschool. I just want to make sure, you know, we have high standards. And so she tells me this joke. She says, what do you get when you cross an agnostic, dyslexic, insomniac? And I'm like, hang on, slow down. What do you get when you cross an agnostic, dyslexic, insomniac? I said, I have no idea, Sister Mary Rachel. She said, someone who stays up all night wondering if there really is a dog. And so uh, I said to her, I said, uh, I said, well, can I tell you a joke? And she said, yes. I said, what do you get when you cross a relativist with a Jehovah Witness? She says, I don't know. What do you get when you cross a relativist with a Jehovah Witness? I said, someone who knocks on your door for no real reason, right? You're good. I have no reason to be here, <laughs> you know. Just checking. Did you know relativism has taken over in our churches? Listen to this stat. Approximately 73% of Christians think there are multiple paths to salvation. Now, they're not going to tell you this in the foyer of the church or in small groups or in Sunday school class. But when you invite them to give sacrificially, they say no thanks. When you invite them to go on a short-term trip, no thanks. When you invite them to a prayer meeting, no thanks. And you begin to realize, wow, you just don't think the lost are lost. I had a friend of mine, he emailed me from Ohio State University. Here's what he says. He says, I have a question for you, and I figured that your experience in Christianity and religion may give some clues to the answer. How can others find peace and spirituality in other religions? From observation, I find that Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists have found peace and spirituality in their religions. The largest religions in the world stress the same basic points of life. It seems that it's the people who follow the religions that make each different. The messages are the same. This is the question that stands out in my mind. He's wondering, should I trust my gauge? Should I trust my gauge or should I go with my instincts? Because when I walk around college campuses and I see all these different religions and their holy books, I go, man, maybe, maybe I need to go with my instincts that are telling me, hey, they're all the same. Or do I trust my gauge? I had a friend of mine go to K-State University. His name was Andrew. He's like, Todd, I'm going to reach my dorm for Christ. I'm like, that's awesome, Andrew. He's like, no, I'm going to reach my dorm for Christ. I'm like, that's awesome, Andrew. He's like, no, I'm serious. I'm going to reach my dorm for Christ. I'm like, okay, call me in a month. You know, just let me know how it's going. He calls me in a month. And he's like, Todd, I'm having a crisis of faith. I'm spiraling downward. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I met my roommate first day of school. I'm like, and? He's a Muslim. I'm like, he is? Yes. Did you know this guy prays five times a day? He goes, I pray five times a month. 
He goes, this guy fasts for 40 days during daylight hours of Ramadan every year. He's like, Todd, I fasted one time in the eighth grade and my girlfriend broke up with me. He says, who am I? Who am I to tell him he's wrong? Who am I to tell him he's wrong? Andrew's the same as Chris. Does he trust his gauge? Or is he going after and, and thinking about his instincts? Here's the main problem with relativism. The problem with relativism is, in relativism, God is swallowed up by human experience as the overarching priority. This model gives us a God who is unknown and unknowable and about whom we can make no definitive statement. The problem with relativism is this. Imagine you're at Starbucks. You know which one I'm talking about. Imagine you're at Starbucks and you sit down at the table. And you look up and you're like, oh my goodness, here in Enid, at the Starbucks, sitting across from me, is a Muslim a Buddhist, and a Hindu. And you go, I am a Christian. I need to engage them in conversation. And so you, you, you step out and you say, hey, excuse me, are you a Muslim? And the Muslim says, yes. And you say, I just have one question for you. How many gods are in Islam? There is one God in Islam. And the Buddhist who's sitting next to him hears you and says, Oh, I'm sorry, I overheard your conversation. There's actually no God. And the Hindu who's sitting next to both of them says, Oh, I'm sorry, actually you're both wrong. There's millions. One God, no God, millions. John Hick, the relativist, would have to say which view is correct. All of them. And if all of them are correct, none are correct. Because as soon as you say God is like, someone says, no, he's not. He's like this. And so it reduces God to become gush. And though the five blind men make it for a good story of touching different parts of the elephant, the only reason that story makes sense is because of the one factor in the room that people overlook. The only reason the five blind men and the elephant make sense is because there's the all-seeing king. And the all-seeing king says, hey, that's an elephant. I have no problem looking at John Hick and saying, this is the all-seeing king. And it says there is no one righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen, we've all sinned, but God sent his son. I believe God is knowable. One of the fascinating think, uh, thinkers of world religions, his name is Stephen Prothero. And Stephen Prothero, he wrote a book called God is Not One. He wrote a book called God is Not One. And, and here's what he says. He says, what the religions share is not so much a finish line as a starting point. Where they begin is with a simple observation, something is wrong with the world. They part company, however, when it comes to stating just what has gone wrong, and they, uh, they diverge sharply when they move from diagnosing the human problem to prescribing how to solve it. He continues, he says, if practitioners of world religions are all mountain climbers, they are on very different mountains, climbing very different peaks, and using very different tools and techniques in their ascent. Here's what Stephen Prothero says. He says, you know what? He says, if, uh, let's, can we go back to that last slide? He says, you know what, if, uh, if practitioners of the world religions, because what what, one of the things we view is this. We, if, if you meet anybody at a Starbucks or whatever and say, hey, tell me how you view God. They'll say, oh, God's at the top of a, mount, God's at the top of a mountain, and we're all trying to make our way up to him, right? And the Buddhist is going this way, the Hindu is going this way. We're all taking different routes, but we get to the same God. And Stephen Prothero says, no, that's not true. Stephen Prothero says, if, if God's at the top of a mountain, we're going on totally different mountains. We're using totally different tools and, and, and types of ascent. He says, there can only be one right way. One of the fascinating things about Stephen Prothero is he's not a Christian. 
He's the chief of, uh, of, of the College of Religion at Boston University. But even he's saying philosophers and professors on college campuses who's saying, oh, there's multiple paths to this one true God, he's like, they're, they're wrong. You just need to make sure your way's correct. And so as we continue, the, if you choose, hey, I don't want to go down the road of relativism, but I want to keep Christ in, in the mix, we go to what you saw next, inclusivism. Inclusivism. Inclusivism says this. It says there, there is only one way to heaven through Jesus. However, it's not necessary for you to, to hear the specifics about Jesus to be saved. It says, inclusivists would say there's only one way th- to heaven through Jesus, but it's not necessary to know this to be saved. And so you might be like, what? What's going on? Well, here's, here's number one in inclusivism. Inclusivists affirm without qualification that Jesus is the definitive and authoritative revelation of God. And the inclusivists would say the death of Christ is the primary event in history. It's the most important event in history, the death and resurrection of Christ. He is the definitive and authoritative revelation of God. And as I mentioned, number two, Christ's work on the cross is necessary for salvation. Without it, no one can be saved. Sounds great. This sounds great. However, the inclusivists would take it a third step and say this. It's not necessary to hear the specifics about Christ in order to access the grace he has. So as you kind of scratch your head and say, how is this possible? Here's what the inclusivist would say. The inclusivist would say, you are only held accountable by the knowledge you possess. You are only held accountable by the knowledge you possess. Okay? You are only held accountable by the knowledge you possess. And so, what that means is this. If you go to the Muslim world, and you sit down with Muhammad, who's a Muslim, and you say to Muhammad, what religion are you? He's going to say, I'm a Muslim. He has no knowledge of the Bible. He has no access to Christianity. And so the inclusivist would say, he accesses Christ through Islam, because he's only true to the, he only, he only has to be true to the light he has. So the inclusivist would say, a person might not know the factual content of the story of Jesus, but they have responded to God with faith in their religion. They're not called Christian. If I ask this Muslim, hey, are you a Christian? He's going to say no. But if I ask the Muslim, are you a good Muslim? Yes. They are not called Christians, but if they're good Muslims, they're a believer and saved by Christ's work just like anyone else. And so that's, that's an inclusivist would say this. An inclusivist would say, when you ask a Muslim... Are you a Christian? No. Okay, well, what are you? I'm a Muslim. Well, do you go to the mosque? Yes. Do you pray five times a day? Yes. Do you follow the teachings of Muhammad? Yes. The inclusivist would say, then that's like you're asking Christ into your life. We in the West, we have full knowledge of God, and so our response is to ask for Christ into our life. But in the East, they don't have that. And so how does a Muslim invite Christ in? He invites Christ in by being a good Muslim. So, Christ's death covers them. They just don't know it till the afterlife. Now, the problem with this view, the problem with inclusivism is, in this view, salvation comes equally to the Hindu who places faith in Krishna, the Buddhist who places faith in Buddha, and the Christian who places faith in Jesus. Moving from the worship of Krishna to Christ doesn't involve turning away from Krishna, but merely a clarification that it was Christ being worshipped all along. I don't see Paul the Apostle saying to the people on Mars Hill and Acts, Men of Athens, what you worship to an unknown God, I say to you, keep going. It'll, you'll, you're finding him because you're true to the light he has. 
Matter of fact, there's verses that talk about it's not just faith that saves, it's specific faith. Listen to this one in John three eighteen: Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's only Son. The Bible talks about a specific response we have to give. It's not just being true to your religion and Christ is going to save you. It's about you have to specifically, in Acts chapter 20, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Greek, Paul the Apostle says, you must repent and have faith in Jesus. But inclusivism sounds great because they have Christ, they have the cross, but there's just no personal response on behalf of the hearer. So you have relativism that takes Christ completely out, and there's no absolute truth. You have inclusivism that gives you a little bit of Christ, but no response. And then for those who say, no, there is absolute truth and a response on behalf of the hearer, we would call them exclusivists. Exclusivist says the only way to heaven is through Jesus, and you must hear and respond to him individually. That's an exclusivist. The only way to heaven is through Jesus, and you must hear and respond to him individually. And here's what the inclusivists affirm, the exclusivists affirm. It sounds a lot like the inclusivists, but you're going to see a tweak. The exclusivists would agree with the first point of inclusivism, which says, man, Christ is key. Christ is key. Jesus is the definitive and authoritative revelation of God. Both who we just talked about, the inclusivists, and who we're talking about now, the exclusivists, would both agree with point number two. Christ's work on the cross is necessary for salvation. Without it, no one can be saved. But where inclusivists would leave and jump ship from exclusivists, exclusivists would say it's not enough just to have the knowledge. You actually have to respond. The exclusivists would say salvation comes through repentance and faith in Christ's work on the cross. No one can be saved without this. So, three people. Relativist, inclusivist, exclusivist. Let's just do a case study, okay? Let's just look at a case study. Here we go. You have a, a Chinese peasant, okay? You have a Chinese peasant. And uh, the Chinese peasant lives in Beijing, just outside of Beijing. And the Chinese peasant throws his rice down every year, and, and the crops emerge. And he's like, wow, how did this happen? Like, I didn't, I didn't uh, control the sun. I didn't control the weather. I didn't control the rain. I didn't control the dirt. And so this Chinese peasant is like, there's something greater out there. And so he walks 10 kilometers to a shrine, and he lights incense to his ancestors. The relativist would say, how lost is the Chinese peasant? The relatives would say he's not lost because he's lighting incense and it's going up to the real. The inclusivist would say, how lost is the Chinese peasant? The inclusivist would say he's not lost. He's lighting incense. He thinks it's going up to his ancestors, but really he's true to the light he has, and so Christ is accepting that. And the exclusivist would say, how lost is the Chinese peasant? Completely lost. And unless someone changes their zip code and moves, he is forever headed to a Christless eternity. The exclusivist would say there is something called absolute truth. Absolute truth means this. One standard of truth for all people at all times in all places. It doesn't matter your age, your ethnicity, your culture, or your country. Absolute truth. Over 127 times, Scripture refers to itself as truth. 
Over 127 times this book says it is truth. The word of God is seen as truth. The word of God is seen as truth. In John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The Holy Spirit's called the spirit of truth. In John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you. The spirit of truth. The church is the church is to be the foundation and pillar of truth. You know, in 1 Timothy 3, you know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. The church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Those who, do not, who deny God are people who, the scripture says, oppress the truth. Those who deny God are seen as people who oppress the truth. Romans 1.18 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. For men will oppress, suppress the truth by their wickedness. We need absolute truth. We want absolute truth. There's some truths that the Bible affirms about itself and us. Truth number one, the Bible affirms the unique authority of Jesus Christ as the apex of revelation. We've looked at this. Truth number two, Scripture declares that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, making peace through his blood. And, and truth number three is, Scripture is emphatic that salvation comes through repentance and faith in Christ's work on the cross. Without it, no one can be saved. The last command of Christ, go ye into all the world, right? We're called, in light of this truth, to do two things. In light of this absolute truth, we're called to do two things. Number one, we're called to get confident. To get confident. What does that mean, to get confident? It means we don't make our own judgment call. Here's what the Bible describes as people who aren't confident. 2 Timothy 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit their own desire. They will gather around in great numbers of teachers. And this is what you see going on all over Enid, right? They will just talk about what their itching ears want to hear. Oh, what do I think's right? How do I think I need to live my life? Who do I want to date? Who do I want to, what do I want to major in? How do I want to retire? Where do I need to go? What do I want to do? And they just talk about what their itching ears want to hear. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. We need to get confident. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We need to get confident. But the second thing we must do is not only get confident, we must get active. Because we have absolute truth, because we hold it, there's a response that we must now do. We have absolute truth, and the world is in our backyard. I mean, think about who we're surrounded with. Our doctors, our Muslims, our, our, our kids play soccer with Buddhists, and we work with Hindus. I mean, the world is here. The world is here. And because of that, we need to say this is absolute. And we need to begin to share this with people. The Bible tells us to get active. Mark sixteen fifteen, Go into all the world and proclaim this gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Again, it's this, this is not just a trust your gauge. This is absolute truth. What do I mean when I say get active? What do I mean when I say get active? I think of two, two things you can do to get active. I think you can go, and I think you can send. And I think this church is about going and sending. We need both. When I say get active, I mean going. Going across the ocean. Going across the street. Going across the ocean. Going across the street. That's what I think about. Again, I mentioned the world is here. Uh, a buddy of mine named, uh, named Hudson, he, uh, he was 
ministering um, to people around him. He met an international student at Starbucks. He begins just to talk to the international student. They build a friendship. He buys the international student a Bible in Mandarin. The international student reads the Bible. His, he's from China, but he takes on the name Samuel. Samuel reads the Bible, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. Samuel comes to Christ. Samuel goes home over Christmas to visit his family, leads his father and mother to Christ. Samuel gets baptized into our church. Samuel now is going back to China. He calls it home, and he's ministering now in China. And my friend Hudson looked at me, and he said, Todd, I used to think that the internationals and those not from here were the mission field. I now realize they're the mission force. We need to get active. We need to get active by going going across the ocean, going across the campus. Friday, Friday, today's Sunday, Friday, Friday. I'm at the place where God moves, Starbucks. And I'm sitting there at Starbucks, and I'm with my my seven-year-old daughter. And I had this awesome cushy chair. You know which one I'm talking about? I had this awesome cushy chair that I was sitting in. And I told Camden, I was like, Camden, they're calling my name for my drink. Stay here and guard my cushy chair. And she's like, okay, Dad. And so she guards my cushy chair, but she doesn't. You know what she does? She follows her daddy. She follows her daddy to get my, 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 my drink. I come back, and guess what? In my chair is a guy. That fast. So there's a hard chair next to him, and I sit down, and I'm looking at Camden like, you're going to get it, you know. And... Um, this guy hangs up from his cell phone, and I notice he has an accent. So I said to him, oh, where are you from? He says, I'm from Saudi Arabia. I said, oh, Riyadh? He's like, yeah. I was like, wow, what brings you here? He's like, I'm getting my Ph.D. I'm here till 2018. I said, you know what? Twice a week, my daughter gets Arabic lessons. Do you have children? He's like, yeah, I have a five- and a three-year-old. I was like, we have a trampoline. Can you just bring them over and let them talk to my kids? And so he's coming over Wednesday night for dinner. Literally, do you realize for me to go to Saudi Arabia to get a visa, to get a passport, to raise the money, to, to then get in, learn the language, meet this guy in Saudi Arabia, which is clamped down, you can't talk about Christ. You realize how difficult that is? But guess what? He's literally in my seat at Starbucks. Like, I have to purposely not sit on him at Starbucks. The nations are here. We need to get active. We need to get active as goers across the ocean, across the campus, or across the street, wherever it is. We need to get active as sending. What do I mean by sending? Sending by praying for the world. Sending by giving financially. For every dollar an American makes, they spend a dollar ten. And you know what? A hundred percent of today's offering is going towards missions, 100%. And so I would just ask you, man, dig a little deeper today and see if they can raise that $20,000 that they, they want to see to support people going all over the earth with the gospel to talk about this absolute truth. You can go, you can send. You can go, you can send. Listen, listen to this verse in Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth and don't sell it. Buy the truth and don't sell it. We have the truth. It's absolute. It's unchanging. It's not relativist on how we feel. It's not about how, what our parents taught us. It's not about how my emotions feel. 
we have the truth. Trail Magazine is the largest publishing magazine for mountain climbers in all of Europe. It goes out to thousands of readers. There's the largest mountain in Europe called the Ben Nevis. Getting down from the mountain is treacherous. It's harder to get down from the mountain than to get up. Trail Magazine wrote in their magazine explicit instructions giving step-by-step advice on navigating the trail down. The directions were wrong. The directions were wrong. We need truth in our life. And we have truth in our life. And it's absolute truth. And there's a response that calls for us to share that. And tonight, I want to invite you back to learn more about how to understand the world around us and how you can take this absolute truth to them. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us this absolute truth that we don't just have to trust our instincts, that you give us this gauge, this unchanging gauge. And Lord, in light of that, prompt us to be active and confident. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Tom.